This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You'll start to realize that instead of feeling guilty about taking a little bit of time off the table for yourself, you're showing up better for the people that you love and the people that you feel this sense of duty for. That was Mike Rucker on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. I'm here with Yael to introduce today's episode with Mike Rucker, where we talk about 
fun. And I was so excited to do this episode. And I'm smiling now thinking about how many episodes we've done on happiness and wonder and fun. And, you know, I'm not sure what that says about all of us as co-hosts or what it says about the state of the world that we're like (laughs) really craving some knowledge in these areas and, and these topics. But I love fun. Who doesn't love fun? And I think it can get really easy to get caught up in the hard parts of life. And so I just really appreciated this conversation with Mike about how we can really inject more fun into our daily lives. And I'm curious, Yael, what your thoughts were about the episode. Well, I like fun too. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we should all have more of it. And he makes some comment about how a little selfishness when it comes to fun is actually the most selfless thing that you can do. And I, I couldn't agree more as a parent, as a therapist, as a partner, that fun really does help us engage more fully and more skillfully in all the roles that we care about most. And this comes up a lot in couples therapy, that people who come in are obviously not having so much fun in their relationships. And often there's more serious things that crop up that bring people in, but it is not infrequent that people will come in because they just feel that their relationship has grown quite stagnant. And that's pretty common, right? Because the longer that you're in a relationship, the more you habituate and the more you kind of get into these really on autopilot kinds of ways of being with one another. And it takes a little bit of deliberate effort to keep things spicy and interesting and fun the longer that you're doing them. And relationships are certainly fit into this. And I was just going to share one really cool research study that I love where couples were randomly assigned to to tasks that were either mundane or silly and novel. And the mundane task was like rolling a ball back and forth for a period of time. And the silly novel task involved partners being Velcroed together and carrying a pillow around an (laughs) obstacle course on hands and knees. And couples who participated in the silly task experienced an increase in their relationship happiness compared to the mundane task activity. And what that speaks to is the importance of variety and and really being deliberate because it's so easy in our busy, overwhelming lives to just do, you know, the bare minimum when it comes to our close relationships because our partner is not going to fire us, hopefully, or, you know, he or she can feed themselves. And so we kind of kick the intentions to incorporate some fun and silliness to the bottom of the priority list. And and to me, this this study and, and your conversation with Mike Rucker is a reminder to try to incorporate some fun, some silliness, some variety into the relationships we care about most. Yeah, it's such a great point. And it's making me think about how, you know, we know as human beings, we habituate to things, right? There's that, what's the fancy term? Hedonic Hedonic adaptation. adaptation, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, so if we're, even if there's something we used to do that was very fun, like when you're first dating and you're just going to a movie or going to dinner, you know, something like that might be really fun. And then it just becomes kind of mundane over time. And Lord knows we're not normally Velcroing ourselves to our partners, (laughs) but that does actually sound quite fun. And, you know, so that, that variety piece and being, being clever, being creative in, you know, how you get playful. And one of the things we talk about, I think it's closer to the end of the episode, um, And it reminds me a little bit of the episode that just came out with Jonah Paquette about happiness and how we can really boost those feelings of happiness as well as fun and playfulness when we do these things with another person, whether it's your romantic partner or, you know, anybody else that, that is in your life. 
Absolutely. And it reminds me too of my my kids have their chores on the weekends and my oldest son has come up with a habit, a fun habit, if you will, of listening to music while he cleans the bathroom. And I think it's absolutely terrific that he finds a way to add some fun to to a task that is otherwise not that fun. And I try to do that as much as I can too. And I, you know, the more that you can make that an intentional habit, something that you practice incorporating fun, even into the less fun parts of your life, I, I think the more fun you can have. And that's a great thing. Yeah, and that that is certainly what the research supports and what Mike and I talk about. So we hope that you find this episode with Mike Rucker fun. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm so excited about today's guest, Dr. Mike Rucker. We are going to be talking about fun today, so I am just thrilled to be covering this topic Dr. Mike Rucker is an organizational psychologist and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, whose work has been published in the International Journal of Workplace Health Management and Nutrition Research. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Fast Company, The Telegraph, Psychology Today, Forbes, Vox, Thrive Global, Mind Body Green, and more. Named one of 10 digital changemakers by the Healthcare Information and Management System Society, he currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness. Mike, welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock. I'm so happy to have you here today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I love your guys' podcast. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. We love to do it. And in fact, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, does doing the podcast count as fun, even though it's sort of technically work? Because I certainly find it to be fun. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I think people that do use their agency and autonomy to do things like this, because certainly if it wasn't fun, I think most podcasters would exit the profession. And so right. there's almost this bias where you already kind of get it. You already kind of get the message, you know, but a lot of folks don't actually do the things that light them up. And so, yeah. you know, that's sort of my purpose for the book to try and gently nudge folks to find what they do enjoy. So, Well, it most definitely does that. And I will start by saying reading the book was also fun. I mean, I laughed out loud <laughs> several times. You're a good writer and you're, you're very engaging and, and accessible and, and funny. But let's start with, you know, we might all think we know what the definition of, of fun is, but it may not be the same as the way you conceptualize it in the book. So why don't you start by telling us what exactly is fun and how is it different from happiness? You make that differentiation in your writing. For happiness, I've kind of fallen on the, the psychological definition, right? So it's this general sense of subjective well-being. And so how you could apply that with regards to any day life is that it's this act of evaluation. Um, so when we think about being happy, we're really looking in the rearview mirror. It's this exercise of introspection because it quite, it, it's contrived by definition, either by us who are using these instruments, you know, things like subjective well-being, so that we can pair ourselves against others, or it's developed by your own traits, like what do you desire? And so I, you know, my insight here came from Dr. Iris Mouse out of uh, University of California, Berkeley, where we were looking at when you talk about happiness in terms of you personally, that could be a whole host of different things, right? Like, you know, I'm happy because I have a connection with my family. I'm happy because I'm striving professionally. 
And so all of those are still acts of evaluation. So I don't think that's problematic for my own definition, but they still could, you know, happiness means one thing to one person and, and one thing to another with regards to our work as psychologists, you know, we've generally defined it as subjective well-being, which is this instrument. And it really does, you know, it's an act of comparing ourselves to others, right? Whether that's country to country or individual to individual. With fun, it's anything that's on the positive side of valence. So that's just a fancy way of saying, are you enjoying what you're doing in the moment or are you not, right? And so valence is a spectrum of whether you are enjoying things or whether you're in sort of, you know, some state of, either boredom or malaise, the whole spectrum of negative emotions. So again, simply put, fun is anything that we find pleasurable. So if you're doing a podcast and you're having fun doing it, you're having fun. It's fun. Yeah. Well, and you're saying you're having fun. So, you know, I also think like, am I, when I'm checking in about my happiness, I'm saying, am I feeling happy versus fun? I'm saying, am I having fun? So it feels like it's, you know, and you talk about this in the book that, that fun isn't a reaction to circumstances. It's really an action versus happiness really being a feeling state. And, you know, at least the way that my co-hosts and I, we we talk about this in all our episodes, but we all practice a therapy called acceptance commitment therapy. And, you know, one of the ideas is we don't get to control how we feel, but we do get to control what we do, right? So we can't control if we feel happy, but we can certainly control what we do in an effort to have fun. Yeah. And, you know, again, fan of both the show and of ACT as a discipline. Obviously, you know, you mentioned I'm an organizational psychologist, but in the clinical realm, it's been fascinating to see how, you know, that that's really growing with regards to, you know, contrasting it against CBT. And I think that's exactly right. I think we're finding more, um, you know, this is a dotted line for me, and, but I where my interest lies is talking to both psychologists and neuroscientists that we're starting to understand more that, the way we view the world through our brain is not necessarily cause and effect like we once thought. It's really more of a predictive engine. And so when we feed that predictive engine that things are good, because I think most would agree, whether you're spiritual or not, that the world is full of bad and good. So my kind of thesis is if you can kind of steer your shit towards the good, and we now know that our brains are sort of this predictive engine, then those predictions by proxy become more positive and more optimistic and the empirical, you know, sort of research in this area backs me up. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. It's reminding me of things like motivation. You know, we often wait to feel a certain way before we do something like I'll wait till I feel like it, wait till I'm motivated. And then I'll do the thing when really like the error sort of goes in the other direction. If you do the thing, even if you don't feel like it and don't feel motivated, typically that, that motivation follows. Yeah. And another kind of thematic analysis that I'm trying to pull from different disciplines. So I got it from my work in workplace wellness, right? It's clear that autonomy has a pretty straight line to well-being, both psychologically and physiologically. There's a ton of workplace research to suggest that. But then you look at social psychology and clinical psychology, and it's clear that agency and autonomy, you know, a lot of this knowledge comes from self-determination theory. Like once you understand that you have a little bit more control, then really interesting things happen, right? One, you use your time more wisely, but also you develop inherently a growth mindset, which we also know has, you know, a host of different benefits. So, but it's a subtle shift, right? I mean, we habituate so much behavior, 
as adults, we have all of these heuristics and there's good reason for that, right? Especially now with all this information coming at us, we need good filters to understand what's important for us and what's not. But because of that, we're exhausted. And oftentimes we kind of, you know, fall into these passive leisure activities that don't really contribute to our well-being. They're really just a way to pacify time because we've lost our sense of control. And so just finding simple ways, you know, even if it's two or three hours a week to reclaim that, you know, is an important step that so many people aren't doing. And so figuring out ways to do that, I think, is an important exercise. Yeah, 100%. And I want to talk about time and I want to talk about your play model. That's sort of the different kinds of, of ways to have fun. But before we do that, I want to I want to make sure we get some buy-in from our listeners. So why fun? Like convince, I imagine most of our listeners are probably like pretty busy professional types, maybe a handful of overachievers out there. Why is fun not just for kids? Like what is the benefit for us as busy adults to prioritize fun? Well, I think enjoying life just in general doesn't require too much, you know, convincing. But to your point, a lot of people don't want to prioritize it. And there are a host of different reasons for that, right? What I found the most interesting in researching the book is there seems to be an evolutionary predisposition to ruminating on negative things. And that probably made sense way back when, when the risks to us were kind of finite. And so we needed to give them more credence than the positive things in our life. But for the most part, I mean, the world is still scary, but for the most part, we don't need to ruminate on all of the negative things all the time. So kind of retraining the brain to think about fun things and, and, and to do that, you need to engage in fun and remember why, you know, you want to be connected to something better than malaise is an important step. So that's one. The second is, is that it really is an additive approach to gaining more vitality. So again, falling back on my own research, it's an interesting paradox that mo- that people don't understand because there is this kind of heavy lift to get started, this cognitive load of, of reintegrating into the things that you like for all the reasons that should make sense. You know, you might have, if it's a reconnection to a hobby, you might not remember it, feel kind of like, I don't want to pick up the guitar because I'm not good at it anymore, whatever it is. <laughs> But, you know, this work comes from Cassie Holmes out of UCLA and Colin West from Toronto. When you start to regain some of that control so that you're really enjoying what you're doing, you have more vitality and you're your better self for the things that you feel the sense of duty for. And so, again, even if it's just a few hours out of the week, hopefully it's more than that. And you start to understand the benefits. And again, I'm trying to convince them, the listener that has resistance just check in with yourself how you feel two or three weeks later. And you'll start to realize that instead of feeling guilty about taking a little bit of time off the table for yourself, you're showing up better for the people that you love and the people that you feel this sense of duty for. And so it's not just about you. I mean, I think people that have a hedonism slant might just be stoked that they get to enjoy themselves <laughs> and didn't realize that they had habituated their life in a way that sucked out the joy and delight out of life. But for the ones that do feel resistance, once they realize like, wow, I'm not just doing this for myself, I'm doing it for others, that's helpful. And then there's another great study, and it it essentially peer validates the hedonic flexibility principle. When we are living a joyful life, 
what we found is the people that are in that space do the harder work. So not necessarily the busy work, but have the capacity to do things that are richer in the moment and lead to betterment. That might seem hard, but you have this more endurance to actually do it. And then that becomes an upward spiral because those things actually then turn out to be fun if you're connected to them, right? Like mastering a new skill. And and then we do them more. And instead of kind of this weight pulling you down, there's this levity that kind of lifts you up. And it's infectious too. It starts to positively impact all the folks around you. So, but it's interesting because it's not a complex idea, right? And so I think that's another difficult thing. Like, wait, you're telling me if I just reclaim two or three hours out of my week, my life's going to be that much better. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So just Mm -hmm. try it. Again, you're only really committing to nine or 12 hours. Reflect on how you feel. Reflect on your ability to be a better person in every other aspect of your life and see if it was worth, you know, time worth spending. Well, and I think the try it is the most important advice because as humans, we rely so much on our language and our brains and we make a lot of predictions and assumptions and have rules about things. And they're not always entirely helpful. So I imagine there, when we talk about the people who have resistance, it probably most commonly comes in the form of, I don't have enough time. You know, how am I supposed to find the time to add more fun when I'm already burnt out? I already have so much, so many things going on. And there's an assumption that if we do this, it's going to take away from our bandwidth because it's just one more thing on the list to do. And what you're saying is, well, test it out because it may be the case that it creates more bandwidth because so, you're taking you're you're kind of t- taking away from some of the other things that might be a little more soul sucking and making time for the thing that fills your gas tank. Yeah, but you did identify an important piece that I kind of stepped over, and that is in this process we generally want to do find things that you're doing that you don't necessarily need to do because it's an important first step to create space. So this doesn't seem additive, right? So Mm -hmm. in my academic work, that's where you see a lot of workplace wellness initiatives be so problematic, right? Because it's like, we're just going to prescribe yoga or we're going to prescribe a meditation practice. Oh, really? To physicians that are already working 60 hours a week? Like just the burden of that. Because we do know that if motivation doesn't hit, that actually ends up being a component that can be toxic. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, so I'm supposed to be doing this thing, but I don't have any capacity to do it. And now you're just making that person feel awful. And so if we were heading in that direction, I, I, I apologize. I think, you know, an important correction that you queued up is that what we want to do first is that oftentimes we think we live this busy life, but we find out that there are these pockets where we're really just pacifying time because we are so exhausted. And so the argument that I'm making is replacing those activities with things that light you up is an additive experience. Trying to find pockets of time in an already busy life can be a recipe for disaster. So thanks for allowing me to make yeah, that Yeah, that's true. Well, and, and I think it's something that the my co-hosts and I must really relate to because when I look at the list of guests we've had on, so many of them share this idea in common. So we had Lighty Klotz on who wrote the book Subtract, which is not just about saying no to things, but about actively removing things out yeah. of your life. We had Nira Yal, who you talk about in your book, yeah, who I think is a, a friend, friend of yours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Eve Rodsky came on and she talks about the importance of 
you know, an equal distribution of labor at home, which creates more time if you're the person who had been doing the lion's share. I mean, there are so many guests we've had on that are all about essentialism was another one that are all about, yeah, right. Like using science to discover ways to limit the things in your life that are draining you and not providing value or vitality and then really being choosy about the ways you're spending your time. And that's essentially what you're saying. And that like one of those choices should be fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really good for us. Yeah. And I'm at, like the mental frame I like is a little bit of selfishness leads to a lot of selflessness because mm. once you have that capacity, then you can contribute so much more, whether that's your own family to being a change maker. Like I make, I feel not to pat myself on the back, but I felt like I made a fairly strong argument at the end of the book that like, this isn't just about the self, but I don't think it's problematic to say, Hey, yeah, I want to enjoy the time that I have here on earth. And also what a beautiful thing that allows me to be a better person and contribute to the greater good at large, ultimately, because I have the capacity to do so. Cause what, what I meant, intuitively, everyone knows that once they get burnt out, they're not going to be able to contribute at all. But yet we tend to be martyrs. And so it's a complex issue why that happens. In the book, I villainize the Puritan work ethic to some degree, because I think that's a culprit, but not necessarily the end all be all. Some of it is that we just do feel this sense of duty. Another is here in the US in particularly, um, we don't take advantage of leisure. We're one of the worst countries to do so. And we know how problematic that is. You know, there's, there's rich literature in that area. The fact that we're not taking some time off to really have a transition from the things that do burn us out. You know, it's like any engine that's redlining all the time is eventually going to break. And so if you're playing the long game, making sure that you're enjoying at least some part of your life becomes extremely important. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly noticed for me as I've gotten more choosy about how I spend my time, I've become a better mom and a better partner and a better boss and a better coworker and colleague and friend and all of those things. And that's a a great point too. Like sometimes if you're in the minority and you truly can't remove anything from your schedule, then look for opportunities where you can at least just change that activity in a better way. One common example that works well for parents, like you said, with the kids is, and I fell victim to this. So, you know, it was an intervention I did, uh, you know, for my own family as well, is that, okay, now I got to go make sure that the kids have fun. So that activity ends up, you take them to the park and then just, you know, sit on the bench and catch up with work emails, right? Where you could co-create this amazing experience with a child where you're both having fun and then creating these memories, which ultimately can lead to not just fun in that hour, but fun after the activity through joyfully reminiscing. And then again, these are things that where you start to learn about yourself and each other. And again, it's just additive, right? Instead of really just wasting an hour. So the anecdote I use in the book is that I I was doing that exercise. It was when my daughter was young. I'll I'll say right up front, this this wouldn't work now because she doesn't want to dance with her dad. But it was one (laughs) of those things where we just wanted to get the kids out of the house, right? So we signed them up for activities And I was taking her to a tumbling class and I realized she was kind of having fun and it was serving the purpose again, like outcome based, right? You know, I checked the box. I was just sitting on a bench, essentially mindfully scrolling on social media to pass the hour while she was doing it. And it dawned on me, like, 
why don't we do this together in some fashion? So I pulled her out of that class and we ended up taking a dance class together that was a few dollars more. I think like, so it wasn't from this place of privilege where I was now, I was able to do that for just a, a few extra dollars. She had an amazing time dancing with her dad. We did this choreographed number by the end. And we look at that so fondly, even though she says she would never do it again because she doesn't want to dance with her dad. And now How she's old back. Is she in, now? Uh, she's 10 and she's back. Oh, in yeah. Gymnastics. My daughter is 10 too. She would never in a million years. <laughs> How horrifying would that be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love this chapter on parenting though. I I mean, I got so much out of it and I think any of us can, you know, we've all had that experience of like that inner groan when your kid asks if you'll play with them or play a board game and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this again. And then feeling horribly guilty because if I were a good parent, I would want to be on the floor playing board games with my kid all the time. And it's really complicated. And you know, you talk about bundling, you know, another way to save time is to make things you're already doing more fun and that that certainly applies with kids. And and we've gotten the hang of that more now. And I think it's easier now because they're a little bit older, they're eight and 10, but we we agree on the movie we're going to watch or the game we're going to play. So, and, you know, they make a lot of really fun games now, you know, like taco versus burrito. And <laughs> there's all these like crazy, funny games that adults can enjoy too, or to find other kinds of things. Like my son and I go hiking all the time and we love it. And it's like this special thing that we do together. And I think that's an important piece of this is that like, it's okay as a parent to do something that's fun for you too. It doesn't make you selfish. And if anything, you're sort of modeling cooperation. Like that's a good social skill to have, like that they should have with their friends too. You don't always get to be in charge of what you're going to do. You should decide together and find something that's fun for whoever's involved. Yeah. You're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, so like one thing I always kind of tried to defend up front is that if you're trying to teach your child a skill, that's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about wanting to enjoy certain amounts of time in a fun activity. And so allowing kids to lead because they're the best teachers. Cause a lot of times we've kind of forgot to have fun because it requires a little bit more horizontal thinking than vertical thinking. So allowing them to kind of reteach us and connect us to, you know, that inner joy is helpful. But then I, the second thing is it isn't fun if both of you aren't having fun. So your child wouldn't play with somebody else that didn't enjoy their time. And so making that argument, I think often for, parents, like it just requires that simple reframe that if you're not, if you don't want to play Hot Wheels again for the 11th time, you can ask them, hey, these are three things I like. Do you like one of them? And and, and pick that one. And then you will just see the magic happen because now yeah. you're at least kind of enjoying it rather than it coming from the sense of duty. And the other problem is if you're overly apparent in, in these moments, so I talk about some research I did in child museums as soon as the kid sees you kind of start to direct, there, there's two things that happen that are problematic. One, the child realizes this isn't a fun moment. This is a moment of teaching, especially if you have a good relationship. They, okay, I get it. We're not supposed to have fun right now. You're in the parent role and I'm in the child role and I'm going to listen. But unfortunately, that changes You know what was kind of this creative fun activity in into the child thinking it's fun. And then two, you lose that ability to sort of flex your creativity and 
enjoy the benefits of those moments where you can think non-linearly and kind of open yourself up to new opportunities. So yeah, it really being mindful of like, okay, I get it. This is time for me to have fun with my child. This is the game we decided to play. And I mean that in more of a macro level, there's certainly games at the micro level and, and then benefit from that. And that doesn't mean that if you're, child's out of line, you can't flip back into the adult role, course correct and come back. Like again, some, some of us get so stuck in absolutes, right? But it does mean that when you're engaged in a fun activity, really try to have fun. And then you, there'll be plenty of opportunities to be an adult and a parent. <laughs> Trust yeah. me. <laughs> well, and, and when you're, when you're letting the child lead and not being directive, I think part of what happens is there's this like natural exploration and curiosity that kids you know, maintain until a certain age and then they lose a lot of it just like we do. And that's certainly one of the things I've noticed, you know, when I think about my son and I going hiking, the best times we've had are the paths we've never been on and we have done zero research. Like we just show up and it can actually be a little scary. There was one hike we went on that I said, oh my God, your father would kill me if he knew I was taking you on this hike where there are no other children. But those have been the most memorable, most fun times because we're we're sharing that like adventure and curiosity and exploration and I think that's what's really made it fun. Absolutely. I mean there are a couple of things there where you know just inherently the research supports you, right? It's like these time blocked moments. So there's this paradox, well you scheduled this hike, but you kept all of this room for spontaneity, right? And that's where again some of fun's magic. Like it's really hard to contrive those experiences, but you can still index them by going on hikes all the time. And then when that magic does happen, it's so special. Like, do you remember, you know, what we had? And then the other is, you know, playing up to the line of edge work, right? Like it's just the fact that there was a little bit of risk makes it interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it doesn't mean you need to put yourself in harm's way, but the fact that you're like, oh, those can be extremely fun moments as well. So like yeah. playing with those elements do become important. And uh, yeah. yeah, I love it. That's great. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And you talk about the importance of reminiscing or the way that reminiscing can like extend a fun experience. And so I'm thinking about that in this context because the, the, the spontaneity of these experiences is part of what made them memorable. And then there was a day that it was supposed to rain. 
by three o'clock and it didn't rain and it was three o'clock. So we're like, let's go. We'll go for a hike. And then of course we're like out on this trail and not only does it start raining, it starts hailing. Oh my goodness. The trail immediately, and we were in San Diego, so we don't get weather like this very often. So it was very exciting. We had our dog who had never experienced this before and completely froze. The trail got completely muddy. I had to pick up my dog to walk with him, slipped, fell on top of my son, literally on top. We have never laughed so hard. We were caked in mud from head to toe. I had just gotten a new car and we had to get in the car, caked in mud to drive home. And this was probably at least three years ago. And he still talks about it constantly. And every time, mommy, remember that time when we went hiking and the, and the hail came and you fell on me? And I was thinking about that I was as I was reading in your book about reminiscing, like what a gift that the fact that this crazy thing happened made it so memorable that we get to keep re-experiencing that special moment because we can reminisce about it together. So can you talk a little bit about reminiscing and fun? Yeah, I think, you know, it's just the sort of conscious activity of savoring moments after they happen, right? And so we know that journaling and kind of this introspection can be helpful for some people. And so I kind of just tailored that activity in a way that can help that predictive engine that we talked about at the beginning. Like as we unpack these things, a few things happen. They help us index the memory. And we know that the more of these memories we have, when we look back at time, we look at it's more expansive versus things where our behavior just constantly is habituated. Those tend to be stored as sort of single memories. And we know that people have a general better sense of well-being if they have a, a bunch of interesting things to think back on because time just by proxy is extended because we're like, oh, wait, 30 things happened in the context of my life versus five. You know, that's a hypothetical, but just to illustrate the point. And then two, it does extend this joyful activity. Like as we're remembering it in any given moment where we might have some downtime or that's the exercise that we want to do, we're able to relive that. Like in your retelling, you were smiling the whole time. And so (laughs) having just a connection to that memory, we know through Barbara Fredrickson's work and others that as we broaden and build these you know, a wide breadth of experiences, that's really where resilience lives. And so it's important for a whole host of reasons. One, it's a good use of time because it allows us to extend sort of the power of fun, as it were. And then two, as we build these experiences, it allows us to look back at our lives, especially in our later years, as it being you know a, a rich, well-lived life rather than someone that looks back and goes, man, time really passed me by. And then three... Now that we, it's an, it's an exercise in flexing your agency and autonomy. So as you build these experiences, it's really building the equity of positivity and optimism. So rather than it being toxic, it's you realizing like, I do have this sense of control over at least my personal domain. Fear of influence might not be worldly, but at least within, you know, what you control, you do have some choices about which way your ship is going. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So if we let's say we've we've got we've got our our listeners on board that they want to start creating a fun habit, which I hadn't even mentioned. The name of the book is The Fun Habit: How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. So if we want to create a fun habit, 
Talk to us about where to start. Like, what if we feel like we don't have any ideas for fun, which I sometimes feel like that happens as an adult. Like, I'm just so boring these days. I can't even generate a creative idea. Or maybe some people might have too many ideas. So how can we make application of this change more likely? Yeah. So first, if you don't have any ideas, really, you know, just a simple brainstorm is a good place to start. I mean, most of us can connect to fun things we did in the past. And for reasons of wisdom and maturity, maybe not all of them apply anymore, but certainly some do. So kind of doing a little bit of introspection and figuring out, okay, what is it that I used to feel connected to that is not in my life now? And kind of writing that down and then looking outwardly, like what is it that I see others doing that isn't necessarily where I'm following, falling victim to fear of missing out, but things that I genuinely wanted to do. And then also things that maybe you put off, even if that's just something as simple as a vacation or something like that, so that you have a premeditated list so that you're not going into this and sort of facing the cognitive load of having to think about that, you know, when you have these opportunities. And so creating that list first. And then the second is whether you want to do a full blown time audit, which isn't hard. You know, it's always, we talk about fun and this is one, if you approach it with curiosity, generally can be a fun activity. But I think an audit for most people is like, really, I'm going to start off my fun quest with a really unfun exercise. But just understanding how you spend your 168 hours within a week and areas where you can create the space to sort of integrate more fun is an important second step. And so in the book, I talk about something called the play model, and it's a really easy way to sort of sort your time and figure out where are these pockets of opportunity. And so play stands for pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. And pleasing activities are things that are generally easy to do. So making sure on your list, you know, whether that's walking your dog, connecting with one of your best friends, things that would be fairly easy for you to implement on your day to day. Those are things that we want to index. This work comes from Daniel Gilbert and Matt Killingsworth from Harvard. And they just know from looking at time journals from others that folks that have these pleasurable activities throughout their day generally have this a better sense of general well-being. So these are important things to do that not enough of us are doing, right? The living quadrant is those hikes that you talked about with your kid. Those really require, especially in our busy lives, to be scheduled on our calendar they require energy. So it's not like you can do them all the time. I don't think you always want to be caught in that hailstorm, right? Right. No. (laughs) (laughs) And oftentimes for a lot of folks, it's reconnecting with something that does require a little bit of work. So they might've played guitar, but haven't picked it up for three years. So it's going to require some work to get back there. But those are the things that really allow us to sort of transcend the ordinary and so become important. So figuring out how to at least have some of those things in your life. Yielding is the low-hanging fruit. And so in the literature, we call this passive leisure. Like, where are the opportunities where essentially once you look at how you're spending that time, it could be easily replaced with something from the pleasing or living quadrant. And so, again, we generally try to start there. Like, what is it the things that you've habituated that when you look at it, one, you don't need to be doing, and two, really aren't fun when you think about them critically. Like social media or just binge watching Netflix, those kinds of things. Relationships of convenience, things that you kind of just do now because, you know, you feel obligated, but could easily be taken off your list or admin work, right? Which is kind of a fancy way of saying things that potentially could be easily replaced with just a little bit of creativity. And so 
That could be something as simple as childcare, and it doesn't have to come from a place of privilege. Some folks, you could make the argument like, do you realize how cheap it is to outsource laundry and kind of figure out if that... But again, I realize that not everyone is going to be able to have access to being able to replace time with money. But like something as simple as childcare, could you do a a kid swap? And especially with older kids, that ends up being a huge win-win where you just kind of feel obligated to obviously to watch your kids, but you can (laughs) trade that obligation with others and free up that time to reconnect with something. And so again, what are the things that where you could, with some creativity, you could potentially swap out with things that you really enjoy. And then agonizing is the same. Again, we can't orchestrate a life or architect rather a life that doesn't have agonizing activities. That's most of us do want to do the hard stuff. And so again, just to define agonizing discreetly, it's things that take a lot of energy and we truly don't like. But when you look at your week in reflection, a lot of times these agonizing activities again, can be either reorchestrated so that they are a little bit more enjoyable, either through pairing them with something fun. Like, so if it's something that doesn't take a lot of cognitive resources, maybe that like exercise or cleaning your house, you could pair that with your favorite podcast, like yours, for instance, mm-hmm. or music that you really enjoy. For me, I'm uh, a product of the 90s. So I that my secret pleasure is gangster rap. There's no way I can listen to that <laughs> with my kids around. So when I'm having to do domestic duties around the house, I'll generally put on the earphones and I enjoy that time. It's sort of because it, it reminds me, it's almost an act of reminiscing. It connects me to the fun time that I had in my 20s and it allows uh, sort of the agonizing aspects of those activities to get better. And so like finding ways to reduce agonizing time in your life also becomes a helpful exercise. And generally with a little creativity, you can either make those things a little bit more enjoyable or again, swap them through some sort of creative act. Like, are you doing your own taxes? Do you really need to do that? Right. And so again, that's just one example that might not apply to you, but generally you can look at things and, and, and see if there's a better way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I found this model incredibly helpful because I think I started out the question, something around the lines of like, what if you can't even think of what to do? And so in the book, you present this model as a two by two matrix with one side. So it's high or low um, challenge. Is that right? Or effort? Yep. And then high or low enjoyment. Essentially fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fun. Essentially fun. So if, if listeners picture that, make a two by two matrix and you have high and low challenge and high and low fun. And then that's where the the pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding fell, fell into. And I found it really helpful to think about fun in this way. Maybe it's just me. I need a little bit more structure in my brain. But it made the idea of starting a fun habit feel so much less overwhelming because I could categorize categorize what I'm doing. And you recommend, I think, taking about a week and actually collecting some data, like writing down all the things that you're doing in a typical week and recognizing in which quadrant those things fall. And that really gives you a great starting point for going, oh, wow, when I get out of my head and actually write this down, I see how much time I'm spending on brainless social media or television or these other kinds of things. Or, whoa, there's a lot of agonizing stuff that maybe I could find a way to make more fun or find a way to to do um, something. And if it, anyone wants a visual and doesn't feel like buying the book, just Google Rucker Play Model. And it should come right up. Just so oh, that's, see it. that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. 
yeah, it's I, it's it's hard on a podcast where you don't have visuals, but it is a really helpful thing to look at. And I was just laughing, thinking about, gosh, what are the things that I have that go into these boxes? And I thought, I think walking my dog is pleasing. And I think that's what you then used as an example. Or friends of ours introduced us to this game called Happy Salmon. And it's a game you can play with your kids that you have to stand up and it's active and loud and you make noise. But a round is like a minute. Maybe thirty seconds, you know. So it's it doesn't require it's low effort, but it was but it's really enjoyable because you can't not get into it. And I thought, oh, I think happy salmon probably goes in pleasing. And I just I don't know. I wouldn't have thought about these things in this way before, and found it really useful to do that. And I encourage people to do the same. I think it's a really great jumping off point to to make some changes for sure. Yeah, and I think each person is going to be different. I you know talk about this in the book. Like I think one way that a lot of folks sort of get this type of advice wrong is that, okay, so this is going to apply to me. I try to give a wide breadth of different things because I think some things are going to resonate and some aren't. And with regards to this particular model, it's not about making it balanced, but it is about if everything that you're doing falls in the yielding and agonizing category, that it's at least an artifact that suggests to you something is amiss and, you know, and requires reevaluation. And unfortunately, so many of us fall in that category. Yeah. Right. And these things can change over time. So we, my family just moved from California where we had our hill hike to New England. And now we have leaves on our lawn that did not used to exist. And I was like, well, talk about agonizing. Like these leaves covered every single inch of grass on my front yard. It was stressing me out that all the new neighbors would be mad at me because I'm not raking my leaves and they're blowing into their yard. But it felt so agonizing. And we ended up hiring someone to do it. But we don't want to have to pay for those services all the time. So we've been talking about next season, at least teaching our kids how to mow lawn and making the... (laughs) that do the lawn. So we might still pay for someone to do the leaves, but basically sharing the agonizing chores among all four of us, rather than paying a lot of money for one person or just having one person in the family have to take it on. Yeah. In the parenting chapter, these aren't my ideas because I was kind of blown away by them, but you know, I went and because they're anecdotal, but I think a lot of us don't realize how young kids can actually start to contribute. And so I've seen a lot of positive benefits of the of what you just described, where people are, you know, wait a second. So my 11 year old can do their own laundry, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 yeah, <laughs> or at least just test it out for a week or two. And so I've seen so many. Uh, just to be frank, this has primarily happened with moms, but I've seen so many moms just pleasantly surprised, like, oh my gosh, I've been able to actually exchange this agonizing activity by sharing that with my child. And I was already giving them allowance. So it kind of already fit into the framework of their family design. Um, And I meant how that's not provocative, allowing kids to essentially fend for themselves and and take ownership of things you're going to have to do eventually. And all of a sudden, wow, the hours back in your day and you, you know, but it just hours that we could give back to them and have fun as a family if we're all contributing to the more agonizing and there's two sides of that right yeah you could give it back you could give back that time and you're a better version of yourself as i i think that's an you know yeah it only takes a a few hours a week to kind of right the ship where okay you know I, i can handle the rest of it 
again, I don't know if I, I mentioned it yet, but another study that I love, again, it's easily Googleable. It, um, is that a word? Googleable? Googleable. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's a Stanford, Harvard, MIT study that essentially brings in the, the research of the hedonic flexibility principle. But what we know about that is that if we are living a joyful life, we have more capacity to, to do the harder stuff. We're able to spend time on betterment because we have that increased vitality. And we just have, whether you want to call it ego depletion or willpower, we have the ability to say, okay, I've had my fun. Now let's tackle this thing in a more joyful way instead of going, ugh. You know, so Absolutely. again, I love yeah. kind of using the metaphor of an upward um, spiral. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You you also talked, I mean, back to the parenting thing you had talked about, and I think this would apply to not just parenting, but that you can make a mental shift from this is an obligatory burden to this is a voluntary choice. And I don't need to be your playmate all the time, but I can choose to do this in a way that's fun for both of us. And I think that can apply across context, not just parenting, but that it sometimes does require that mental shift that this is a good thing. This is worth doing. This creates benefit across you know, different areas if we allow ourselves the, yeah, the, the simple time to make it important. Mental frame is I get to do this versus I have to do this. Yeah. And so if you get your own buy-in, right? Like, wait, I essentially co-created this, whatever it is, then at least you know that you, you know, have some skin in the game versus right. oh, this is just another thing I have to do. Right. Yeah. So you dedicate, this is making me think of a funny story that might be TMI to share on the podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. But you dedicate an entire chapter to friendship and the benefits of bundling friends and fun. And you start with this story that I think most parents can relate to, which is that like painful, obligatory kid party at the trampoline park. And it made me think of this time that my sister-in-law and I, oh, she might kill me that I'm telling this story. We took our kids to a trampoline park and we were bored to tears, bored to tears, right? Just like sitting on the sidelines, watching them do their thing, looking at our watches, like, when is this going to be over? And I don't remember whose idea it was, but we were like, well, why are we sitting here? Why don't we jump? There's no age limit. Like, let's go get the socks and jump on the trampoline. And what we hadn't taken into account that is that two middle-aged moms on trampolines, we realized very quickly, we don't quite have the same um, pelvic floor muscles that we used to. And I, the two of us, I don't know if we have ever laughed so hard in our <laughs> lives, even though we were quite literally peeing our pants. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was hysterical. And we were having a blast. And of course, this is another example of something we continue to reminisce about. But it's great. I, lo I love it because I, I will share too um, that I did the same thing just three weeks ago and I entered the dodgeball area and I just, every kid decided that my groin was target. <laughs> so yeah, it was of like- Of course they did. <laughs> yeah. There's a grown up in the dodgeball area. So I had a lot of fun oh except God. for, uh, you know, having to uh, be a little bit more prudent than everyone else there. But yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> oh it was a good God. time. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> well, can you talk a little bit about this friendship and fun and maybe give some suggestions for how we might incorporate more fun into yeah. our friendships? Again, I think it needs to be deliberate, right? Like one of the episodes I really enjoyed listening was when you had Adam Dorsey on, you know, cause I know he talked about this as well, but 
those connections we now know are so important, right? Like loneliness as a construct and the ill effects of it are, are so important. These friendships of convenience can be interesting and certainly you can find friendship there. But what I suggest in this chapter is that really finding f- friends that you do find fun to try and connect with at least a few of them so that you don't feel like everything that we talked about in the podcast that doesn't come from the sense of obligation. Like I've got to be this person's friend because, you know, I got to sit here on the bench and watch our kids play baseball. Like with just a little bit of effort, you can generally find people. I just moved as well. So, right. It becomes problematic. I talk about that in the book too, getting to North Carolina as, you know, someone in their late forties trying to find new friends did require for me to put myself out there. And I think later in life, I've kind of transitioned from an extrovert to an introvert. And so whether or not that's true, I can at least say (laughs) that wherever you are on the spectrum of that, trying to go out and find new friends does require you to be a little bit deliberate about it. But there are some easy ways. So you asked me specifically, what are some of the strategies? I think finding an affinity for what you really want to do and then trying to connect around that is a great way. For me, I really like music. So I sought out folks that didn't really know who I who I am, but that we had this connection. And so we essentially went on play dates and it was a great way to get connect with these folks, especially if there's an activity that takes you out of having that, what we call in, in social psychology, storming, norming, and forming that are so exhausting. If you're already like playing football or, you know, in, engaging in an activity that you guys both like, it takes the the load off of having to talk and what because you're like you just both look at each other and smile because you're doing something that you like and then you can unpack that using a common language and so there are online opportunities to do that meetup.com is one that i suggest in the book you can certainly just survey without being weird about it the the friends of convenience that you do have and see if any of them you know might make sense to further connect with Or you can be deliberate about connecting with old friends, which I think is so important now too. And yes, you can do that by Zoom. You know, my best friend lives in Piedmont, California. And so we definitely make sure to connect with each other. But even if it does require some resources, I think going to see old friends so you feel that sense of connection, this is important as well. So yeah, there's such an ease with old friends. You know, you have to be a little bit more on when you're establishing a newer relationship. I, I was thinking about it when I was reading the book, thinking, ooh, what, what can I do being in this new, new place and meeting people? And what did I do when I moved to California way back when? And I'm not an athlete. I don't play sports. And there was a time my now husband was on a kickball team. And I would go watch because that was fun. But I would always wear high heels because they always needed a, a subwoman on the team. And I never wanted them to make me play because it would be the opposite of fun for me. But it was the same recreational league. So for anyone in Southern California, it's called Vavi. It's awesome. V-A-V-I. And they created the first ski ball league, like at David Musters, where you yeah. throw the hole in the, well, the ball in the hole. And you know, we had a whole huge grand championship, like the way they do the brackets and the final four basketball. And we won the whole entire, the whole entire skee-ball championship and got so many tickets. I won a rice cooker. Like, you know how many tickets you would need to have a rice cooker at the Dave and Buster store where you buy your tickets. And this, like this experience, even though it wasn't necessarily something we all had a pre-existing love for skee-ball there was something about it that was it was 
I mean, it was just so playful and we had so much fun. And I think just sharing that activity with my teammates, even the ones I may not have had a lot in common with, it just bonded us. Yeah. And it was a blast. I'm like, I got to find something like that now in my new town. I'm not sure what, but I'll have to look. And another great way to do what you just described is pair fun with kindness and try and find a way to volunteer. And there are a lot of really fun ways. Like, so one I talk about in the book, as a child, I lived in the Sacramento area and there was an American river cleanup where you got to get in your scuba diver gear and go look for stuff down the American river. So you were cleaning up the pollution, but you're also finding all sorts of really crazy stuff. And similar to what you just described, there was a prize for the craziest stuff. And so one of my fond memories, it wasn't my father, but somebody else discovered a, maybe it was my father, heard a uh, typewriter. And so one the most keys found in the river because they allowed him to count each key. <laughs> I'll never forget that one because it, oh, you know, the brilliant. years prior it was keys, right? Because so many people lose, you know, their keys when they're in yes. a it. Oh, so, that's hilarious. I um, love that. And my daughter and I, you know, again, when we were living in California, would do beach cleanups and we meet the coolest people. And most of those organizations that have these types of volunteer events that include children or generally make them fun because they know that's a way to attract folks. And I, in my own experience, just really cool people attend those types of things. So it's another, if you're just looking at like, how do I get started? Cause you moved to a new area. Those types of opportunities can be another great way to go find cool friends. That's a great suggestion. You t- talking about diving and looking, I was almost thinking about like treasure hunting and it reminded me of geocaching. Do you know geocaching? Yeah, my daughter and I just did that in, in a interesting. Um, so I think it's, you know, a j- geocaching adjacent, but we just did a huge scavenger hunt in Durham where we were essentially looking for Alice in Wonderland. It, it was oh. it? It was really cool, but yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of those things that we I haven't done in a while that is so fun and such a fun thing to do with kids. I think that that is another thing listeners could try. You just get an app. It's the Geocache app and you find these little treasures anywhere in your town or where you're on vacation and you essentially go for the scavenger hunt. And it is, again, and I think part of what makes it fun and related to kind of this question of friendship or parenting is that it's often something you do together and that there's like this real bonding that goes on when you're on an adventure having fun together. And then also the final, like when you actually accomplish the, what am I trying to say? I'm having such word finding difficulties. Well, what I would suggest is that all of what we've described, you know, in a very macro fashion is a shared goal, which we know whether it's work or personal life, you know, it, it just means that you have a common language now around something that's pretty cool, right? And so, yeah, like, and then you don't have to think about how am I going to present myself? You're like, hey, we are connected together in the shared interest. And it's it's yeah. just good fertile ground for having more fun, you know, kind of biases the activity in, in, in the favor of in really enjoying it. Yeah. Well, Mike, I could t- literally talk to you about this forever. This is, it's such a great book. There is so much more in this book. Possibly my favorite part was, it, I think it's a whole chapter where you talk about how to actually take a vacation and the best right way to do it. So I really encourage listeners to pick this one up. You will not regret it. Mike, if people want to find you, find out more about you, about the book, where can they find you? Uh, so my website's michaelrucker.com. I write about the science of fun and that's a good place. 
all of the social channels and emails and stuff, you can contact me through that website, michaelrucker.com. And then the fun habit is available everywhere right now if you're interested in the book. Fantastic. And we will link to all of that in our show notes. Thank you so much for being here. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you're a fellow bookish nerd like our Psychologist Off the Clock team, then we hope you'll join us once a month for a deep dive into the books that we're going to read together. If you're interested in joining us, and we hope you are, just send an email to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you further information. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.